yeah, I, for me, it's like I just became super attuned to how much space cars take up in a way that I just don't think people appreciate. It's very easy to say we need more parking in a place, but there's not that much conversation of like what you're giving up when you do that. And I think I think being a biker or a pedestrian helps you see what actually you're giving up by prioritizing car infrastructure. Hey, it's Aaron Napperstack here. Welcome to The War on Cars. We have a special guest for you here today. His name is Jamel Bowie. Jamel is a columnist for The New York Times and a political analyst for CBS News. He covers campaigns, elections, national affairs, and culture. But that's just his day job. If you follow him on social media, then you know that in between producing two columns a week for The New York Times, Jamel is an incredible street photographer, studies American history, plays Nintendo, writes reviews of movies and breakfast cereals, gets involved in local land use politics, is raising a two-year-old son, and the list goes on. And so it was with great interest to us here at The War on Cars when last spring we noticed Jamel tweeting enthusiastically about a new topic, his electric assist bicycle. Clearly, it was time for The War on Cars to sit down with Jamel Bowie. And so I did. I had a great conversation with Jamel uh, that somehow moved from e-bikes to parking policy to voting rights and touched on a lot of other stuff too. And that's coming right up. But before we get to that, a quick word from our sponsor. You've all heard the saying, April showers bring May flowers. Well, you don't want to be caught off guard when it starts coming down while you're out on a bike ride or a walk this spring. So get yourself some stylish, Cleverhood rain gear and you'll be prepared for whatever Mother Nature throws your way. The folks at Cleverhood, who are based out of Providence, Rhode Island, they've thought of everything, from reflective details to keep you visible, to secure zippers that won't let in any water. Listeners of The War on Cars can now receive 25% off anything in the Cleverhood store. Just go to cleverhood.com slash waroncars, enter code waroncars, that's all one word, and you'll get your discount. That's a huge savings on some high-quality rain gear. So get yours before it starts raining. Jamel Bowie, thank you for joining us here at The War on Cars. Oh, my pleasure. So, Jamel, you've been tweeting a lot about your e-bike. And so to prepare for this interview, I wanted to go back through all of the Jamel Bowie bicycle tweets that I could find. Because there's a body of tweets there. And I, I found two tweets that I, I just kind of want to run by you um, as like two data points. And they kind of tell a story. So February 17th, 2020, a little bit more than a year ago, and basically like right before the pandemic hits us in a real way, you tweeted, our next major household purchase is going to be an e-bike, exclamation point. Very much looking forward to it. That's tweet number one. February 17th, 2020. Then, almost exactly a year later, February 26, 2021, you tweet, Seriously? I'm convinced that e-bikes are the future of transportation. (laughs) (laughs) So, here we have, in one year, you have gone from, "Eh, I'm thinking about buying an e-bike, to e-bikes are the future of transportation. And, uh, like, take... Take me on that journey. Like, what what happened in that year 
you know, to get you from there to here? Sure. Um, so to start, I've been riding a bike my whole life. I grew up in Virginia Beach, Virginia, which is not a bike friendly place. Um, it's very much a car centric, you know, design, sprawling subdivisions and shopping in malls and um, strip malls is sort of the landscape of Virginia Beach until you get to the ocean front, which is the most popular part of the city and also the most walkable and pleasant part of the city. But I grew up in Virginia Beach, didn't have a car until I was like 17. Uh, and so a lot of how I got around from my friends' place in my neighborhood to just like going to other neighborhoods down the street was just by a bike. And I've, I've been sort of a, a bicycle person for most of my life. Living and working in Washington, D.C. for about seven years, Jamel mainly used a Brompton folding bicycle to get around town. About four years ago, he and his wife moved to Charlottesville, Virginia, where they live now. And it's very hilly here, much more so than in D.C. And so although I used my Brompton a bunch to get from our then apartment, now house, um, to downtown or to the library, what have you, it, it became, I was getting kind of tired of doing it, of putting all the effort into getting from point A to point B. And then we also have um, a kid. And at the time, he was about one and a half. And so he was basically at the point where he could be on a bike in a kid's seat. And I wanted to be able to bring him around because he's you know very getting very mobile, wanted to take him to playgrounds, and didn't want to just hop in the car. In D.C., we had one car. My wife is a teacher and had to drive out to Northern Virginia to work. And so we had a car basically for that reason. Uh, we have a car here because you do you do sort of need one um, for a bunch of reasons. But we live close to downtown Charlottesville. And so actually, other than dropping off my son at daycare, most of my day-to-day, I can not be in a car. And on the weekends, I, I rarely drive at all. And while Jamel lived close to a couple of bus stops, he found that the buses didn't run frequently enough to be all that useful to him. He didn't want to have to drive everywhere, but the folding bike was no longer cutting it. So he started looking at electric assist bicycles. It was the kind of thing where when I was doing research, there's, there's, you know, there's obviously electric bikes and electric cargo bikes that go from relatively expensive, relatively inexpensive to actually quite expensive to like comparable to a down payment on a car. Yep. And I was, I was looking at that higher range and I, the, the, the decision I came to is that if I do this, I actually want to get something pricier that I can kind of just treat as a second vehicle, not as just a, a, a recreational thing, but this is my wife will have the car to go to work. And if she needs to do something and I will just have my bike because I feel comfortable being on the road. And I, you know, I, I a little superficially wanted to look nice. I wanted to be sort of I wanted to be aesthetically pleasing. And so that, that kind of just automatically bumps you up into the higher cost range. After shopping around and doing his research, Jamel settled on the Turn GSD. That's Turn like the bird, T-E-R-N. But the closest bike shop selling the Turn was a two and a half hour drive back up to Washington, D.C. I, I, I immediately got a sense of what this thing would do for my lifestyle when I had rented a car to go up to D.C. because we don't have an SUV and I just needed a larger car to actually transport the thing. So I rented... Um, an SUV to bring the to grab the bike, and my thinking is, I grab the bike, I bring it back to Charlottesville, back to the car dealership, and so I could just drop off the car and then bike home. 
And that's what I did. And it was just sort of the, it was one of the smoothest, best rides of my life, right? Like it was a, it was an easy ride. I got home in like 25 minutes. It was very quick. And I was like, holy crap, I can basically traverse town. Yeah. And, and when I, when you think about it, not that much longer than it takes to get around town on a car. Right. I can traverse town on this thing um, very quickly, and it, it's just a pleasure to ride. And so I that was in May, and I basically spent the entire summer and much of the fall on the bike with the kid on the back going to playgrounds, running errands, doing as much as we could in the pandemic. And even in the winter, I still was on it all the time. So after a, a year between the tweets... That second tweet, the recent tweet, was pretty much inspired by a year in which the bike more or less transformed my mobility. It's like not like I had a hard time getting around in the first place, but being able to hop on to the bike, get to where I'm going, anywhere in Charlottesville, pretty much, within a half hour at the at the at the furthest end, lock it up walk in to do what I need to do, hop back on and, and get out and not have to worry about parking. I have to worry about fuel, like kind of just having all the conveniences of a bike and kind of a lot of the conveniences of a car as well. And then real, and then seeing friends of mine also follow my lead and get bikes and kind of have the same kind of experience. Having seen how transformative the electric assist bicycle could be and being the New York Times national affairs columnist that he is, Jamel almost immediately began thinking about the broader social implications and possibilities of replacing car trips with e-bikes. I live in a part of town that has a lot of working class families, that there are a lot of people who do rely on that one bus stop or the couple bus stops to get to work and get home. Um, And knowing how everyone's job isn't really that far away. And so for people who are able, like, get them a subsidized e-bike and... You've just, you get to work faster, cut down on cost of owning a car if they need one. I mean, it kind of in a town like Charlottesville really can reduce the amount of money you need to live here. I kind of start coming to the conclusion that setting aside how much it's been transformative for my life, I do think that the ease of use, the speed, the relatively low maintenance and low cost maintenance makes this the kind of vehicle that and and compared to a car the the relative low expense makes this the kind of vehicle that for a lot of Americans not every American but for a lot of Americans could provide the kinds of mobility that are is really needed and if you could get 10% of people doing their daily life on a bike that clears up roads that kind of that kind of makes it easier for everyone else who does rely on cars and does rely on um, motorized transportation to get around. So that was a long answer, but that's kind of where 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 that came from. How is it for your son? Does he has is he excited about the e bike or does he have any feelings about it? Uh, and how is it for you biking around the city with a kid? I know that for me, biking with with two kids actually on a Dutch family bike as I was you know ten years ago. It definitely changed my perspective on the city in a variety of ways. I would notice reckless drivers more because it's not just me now. It's my kids on the bike. I would I actually notice terrain more. I noticed where little hills were because I, I was riding this incredibly heavy 
Dutch family bike with two, <laughs> two large little napper stacks in it. Does your kid notice the bike in any way? Has it changed your relationship with him or, or your perspective on the city? Uh, yeah, so he he loves the bike. Now that the weather's warming up again, he asked to go on the bike. If on a weekend, I'm like, hey, do you want to go to the store with me or run an errand? He's like, are we going to be on the bike? Obviously not in that clear language. He's, again, two and a half, so in, in toddler speak. But um, so he's on the he loves being on the bike. It's a lot of fun for him. Much of our much of our time on the bike involves him pointing out things to me best as I can, trying to answer him uh, and have a little conversation. I'll say that I've had a similar experience in terms of just noticing more about drivers. Like I 100% notice wreck in in the same way that my having a dog has trained me to see squirrels everywhere. <laughs> yes, exactly. Being on a bike, it's just trained me to see bad drivers yeah. and reckless drivers. And the ways in which things that drivers do not perceive themselves as being reckless are actually incredibly reckless. And so, like, you know, I rely on drivers using turning signals to figure out how I'm going to react in a bike. And when they don't, it really is, like, just kind of adds a level of chaos that I do not enjoy. Um, but I, as a dri- driver, I don't think perceive that it's being a reckless move, but it is actually very... Very reckless. So an interesting thing happened as Jamel began riding around on his new bike. The electric assist motor expanded his range and allowed him to see a lot more of Charlottesville. He began to get a more holistic feel for the city in a way that might not have happened if he were traveling in a car or on foot or even on a regular pedal bike. I'll add, you know, this is the War on Cars podcast. It's very (laughs) urbanist friendly. Yeah, we can speak freely here. I I will say that traversing Charlottesville on a bike and just going on kind of casual, not even point A to point B, but even just going on casual bike rides, which is what I'll do with the kid a bunch. I've just seen so much more of this town. And so my sense actually, like I I occasionally tweet very vociferously about land use decisions in the city. And a lot of that's inspired just by actually seeing like – 70%, 80% 70%, 80% of lots in the city. Like I've actually seen much of the built environment of Charlottesville just from biking around. And so when when someone says, oh, there's too much density in this area, it's like, well, no, there's not. Like I can tell you right now <laughs> right. how right. many, what the lot size is and how many empty lots are. Like I, I have a visualization of that. And there's this way in which becoming someone whose primary mode of getting around here is on a bicycle has sort of like made me much more aggressively, you know, pro density, um, anti cars, anti parking. Cause it just becomes like a waste that you can, you see it as like a, the waste of space that it is. You kind of, you kind of, you don't, you don't drive into downtown and only perceive the parking in downtown. I perceive the parking in the entire like mile radius around this area. And so for me, it's like, oh, there's there's too much parking here. Like right. it's it's never used. It's taking up space. We shouldn't construct more in a way that I'm not sure that you get if if your primary way of getting around is a car and like you're attuned to sort of what the car needs. And so that's just been interesting. Like. Yeah. It's like you've been radicalized, you know? It's like, how was Jamel Bowie radicalized? Well, he took his kid to the playground on an e-bike a lot. <laughs> uh, but, 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 ser- but seriously, I mean, that's pretty much, 
that's pretty much what happened. <laughs> Are you starting to, as you bike around, develop your own policy ideas on the local level for you know what you would change to to make e biking more common or safer or better? Oh yeah, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, you know, first of all, there's probably like a, there is a direct path for me getting an e-bike to me deciding that I wanted to be on the city parking commission. Um, oh, you, oh, so you've actually, you, you're like active. You're in. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm on, I mean, it's a, it's an advisory board. So it does not, nothing we do has necessarily the force of, you know, law or policy, but it's not nothing. So for example, there's a big, controversy over new parking garage that um uh parts of the that we have a contract to build that parts of the city wants to build but it's still kind of up in the air whether it'll actually happen and the parking advisor the last iteration of the committee or the board um wrote a letter in support this iteration which has myself and a few other new members wanted to also write a letter of support but the fact that a bunch of us are like you know pro-transit pro-density car skeptic types meant that we didn't write the letter. There's not going to be a letter of support, which actually does have an effect on what the council is going to decide about what the city council is going to decide about the garage. And so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a modest thing, but it's sort of like, that's my dipping my toes into this. Well, you wrote a, a, a column that I really liked a couple of weeks ago that got into some of the challenges of, of policymaking. It was your column about, the collapse of the electrical grid in Texas uh, and the failures of governance that that surrounded that catastrophe, you wrote, amid awful suffering and deteriorating conditions, Texas Republicans decided to fight a culture war. In doing so, they are emblematic of the National Party, which has abandoned even the pretense of governance in favor of the celebration of endless grievance. And, you know, that got me thinking about the war on cars, um, which, you know, is, <laughs> you know, it's like a tongue in cheek reference to a culture war. And, and so much of our politics now is is not really about policy and governing. It is about this kind of culture war and entertainment and transportation has become part of that culture war too. you know, pick up trucks on one side and you know, e-bikes with kids on the back uh, on the other. These are both, you know, in their own way, like potent signifiers on either side of this culture war. And I think a lot about how do you deal with that? Like if our goal is simply just to create policy that will make transportation better and move American cities away from the automobile to more efficient modes, how do we do that without getting totally bogged down in this kind of quagmire of culture war? Or, you know, do we just have to accept that that's what it's about and fight the culture war? Yeah, it's it's interesting because even if you do not want to play the culture war game, your opponents are going to, right? Like Albemarle County, which is the county, Charlotte in Virginia, cities and counties are separate. So it's not that Charlottesville is within Albemarle County; it's separate from the county, um, but we're geographically within the county, and the county surrounds Charlottesville. But Albemarle County recently had a planning commission meeting where they postponed a decision on allowing a, a new housing development that was going to be mostly affordable for the developer to make some additional changes. And the opposition to even allowing the development at all was from, you know, nearby homeowners in their kind of generic tract homes, but they apparently think are more than that, 
um, who went through all the, the litany of horrors that would happen if you let people live, you know, two families to a unit. Right. In the midst of that conversation, one of the planning commissioners brought up the long since demolished Cabrini Green housing projects in Chicago. And it's like, you know, that commissioner who I happened to email and ask about this, like explain that, you know, this was only about sort of the deficiencies of public housing, et cetera, et cetera. But you bring that up and that's just, that's just a culture war dog whistle, right? That's actually, that's saying something to listeners about what the speaker thinks is going to happen. And it's signaling something in a, in a culture war. Like there's no avoiding it. It's, it's a move that's like too potent to, to, to not use for opponents of stuff, for opponents of bike lanes or opponents of just de-emphasizing car infrastructure. And so in terms of countering it, I, I don't know if I have a strategy, but I, I know that my preference is just to try to refocus the conversation as much on concrete advantages and benefits and also point out that the people invoking the culture war aren't aren't disinterested, right? Like this is self-interest. And so it, it's, I don't know, like just noting where there's self-interest and trying to just to, to refocus the conversation on the actual issue at hand, right? The actual issue at hand in the case of a housing development isn't some like scary specter of a dead Chicago public housing development. It is sort of your actual friends and neighbors in this city who want to live somewhere. The The issue with a parking garage isn't, you know... Are we going to be anti-car? It is economic situation is not great. Do we have fifteen million dollars to spend on new parking when our schools need to be rebuilt? And that's the only way I can think of kind of responding to culture war stuff without playing on that turf. And so, in the case of national politics, right, we're kind of experiencing this right now. Big, massive uh, relief bill was passed, one point nine trillion dollars by the Biden uh, administration and Democrats in Congress. And the Republicans in Congress are going on about Dr. Seuss yeah. or whatever. It's kind of, ma it's maddening. It's like- I think the right response is just not even to engage it, to say, you guys can talk about that if you want, but here are actual problems that we're trying to solve. And I don't know, I don't know how much that's going to work, but I do know that endlessly trying to litigate culture war stuff from the perspective of governance is a fool's errand because there's nothing you can do about it. Like, what are you going to do, right? Like, what are you going to, are you going to, in the Seuss case, are you going to mandate, is the government, is the Congress going to pass a law saying that the Seuss LLC <laughs> has to publish these books? All right. No, of course not. What you're experiencing there, I assume, with a more conservative rural county surrounding your, you know, your little blue city, it's, you know, that's a microcosm of what's happening in the U.S. And, uh, you know, a thing that I think about a lot is is the way in which, you know, our constitutional system here in the U.S. just fundamentally disfavors cities in a variety of ways. Right. I, I, I to, to add to, to the disfavoring of cities point, I think it's worth emphasizing that this is not just true of national politics. It's true of sort of state by state politics as well. One One thing I think people should really internalize is that when uh you know a politician is railing against a city like a, a politician in say 
Kansas is rebelling against the city, they're probably talking about Topeka as much as they are New York, right? Sort of it's every state has a big city or several, um, and the cities in every state, and the rural urban divide is true pretty much in every single state. So this is like, this is true everywhere. And I think it's worth impressing that upon people um, because I think it gets to the solution, which is that I don't think there are any, the reforms to change this are not about policies so much as they are like electoral design. Because in my view, the issue here is that it's possible to win elections, um, national elections, without having to really appeal to city dwellers at all. And so if you're a political party who has like hinged itself on a rural and exurban base, you have no real incentive to try to compete for votes in cities. This distorts in all sorts of ways, not just across like a, a red blue axis, but like in terms of just what issues are are, are described are discussed in national politics. Like I think that if the Republican Party were competing for votes in fast growing cities, that housing policy would be like a national issue. And 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 just the construction of housing would be a national issue, especially with the Republican Party making headway with working class voters. Like you have right there a potentially potent policy area if the party were competing for votes in cities, right? And so in that, you know, my my all all the reforms I have would be things that kind of move the country closer to one person, one vote, right? Like you get rid of the electoral college which people believe would mean that big states would dominate. But really what would happen is that because states would cease to matter in terms of who did, because becomes the president, you'd be looking at kind of like mid-sized metropolitan areas are the, are the, are the most important geographic areas. You could imagine if a Republican party all of a sudden now had to really compete for winning every possible vote, then yeah, you would spend time trying to win votes in fast-growing major cities, which are not just New York and California, but Texas and Georgia and plenty of other states as well, North Carolina, South Carolina. And you would have an incentive to compete. And I think this goes both ways, right? Like it would be Republicans competing for votes in cities and then Democrats competing for votes in rural areas, knowing that even if you don't win the county, you still win the, the votes still matter. This is, I think it's important that everyone needs to fear losing and everyone needs to believe they can win. And when you have a party that does no longer fears losing, it can become hidebound and stagnant. And if you have a party that no longer believes it can win, it can become like nihilistic and terrifying. And I think we're, I think, I think nationally, right, we have a, we have the Republican Party, which sort of doesn't really believe it can win um, without changing the rules and like, kicking people out the electorate. And then in cities like New York, in the state of California, you have a party that does not think it can lose. And so that creates its own set of dysfunctions. And like having having meaningful party competition on the basis of like one person, one vote, I think would scramble things in in ways that would ultimately be beneficial. And it would it would bring to the fore issue areas that are really neglected. Again, I'm going to go back to housing because I think it's sort of, there is no national drive, no national politician saying the United States needs to construct much more housing than it does. And I think that has everything to do with kind of like the how the party coalitions right now are um, 
what their nature is. Back when the construction of housing was like a matter of national concern, the party coalitions were much more fluid and you had you know, Republicans strongly competing for the votes of city dwellers and suburbanites and Democrats strongly competing for the votes of rural Americans. And that, yeah, that, that puts certain issues on the table in a way that just isn't the case now. You know, Charlottesville was, of course, the site of the big, scary, white supremacist march in 2017. And I'm just, I'm curious if, if you have ever yourself been made to feel vulnerable um, while you're bicycling. You know, not so much for the fact that streets are dangerous and they're designed for cars and, and not bikes, but because you are a black person riding a bicycle on an American street in an American city and in a place where there's actually quite a bit of tension and foment in the last few years. Yeah, I, I can say that if I have gotten a scant looks or whatever, I just have not noticed them. Um, I don't know that I have specifically experienced that, which I think I think speaks to something that that gets kind of short shrift in these kind of conversations, which is just like class, right? Like we're an affluent family, you know, like two incomes. I work for the New York Times, and so I'm on my bike, and I am dressed in, you know, a pair of nice jeans and a collared shirt and a visibly nicer jacket. I'm on a bike that is visibly expensive, right? Like it's people may not be able to know how much it is, but everyone can see that it's not like a cheap thing. And so so even even I'm very dark skin, but like I still have these class signifiers that do shape how people react to me and respond to me. I think that if I were a working class black guy on a regular ass bike, right? Who, who is dressed going to a job at, you know, at the grocery store or dressed going to a construction site or something that would signal, you know, my class position. If I were coming from one of the public housing units in the city, or if I were coming from, there are several uh, trailer parks in the city. If I were coming from a trailer park, right? Like all of these things would send a different signal. And I think it, that would very much shape um, how I go through the city on a bike. And it's rarely talked about in these terms within Charlottesville. But I do think that not just improving transit options, but making it easier and safer to bike around the city is... like I, I would, I would have used my class privilege such that it is to do something that I think would sort of actually benefit working people in the city. Making the city less car dependent is making the city less expensive for people. Making it safer to bike is making it safer for workers who rely on bikes to get to their jobs, to get to their jobs safely and without trouble. It's not going to solve everything, but it is something that along with improving bus service, along with Building more housing, um, affordable public and market rate are things that make the city more comfortable for its its working class population. But to directly answer your question, it's it's this class thing that I think offers a bit of a shield here. Now, I don't know what would happen, right, if like a cop got me mixed up with someone. I don't know how that's going to play out. But I know just in terms of like my day-to-day life going from point A to point B, being someone who is like visibly middle class at the very least does matter in a way that does, I think, to shape 
conversations about racial discrimination, conversations about police violence, probably need to engage more with this class question in a way that they don't typically. Exposure to police violence for African Americans is greater for working in lower class black Americans and upper class black Americans. The fact that exposure is not eliminated for upper class black Americans is, I think, why it's such a salient issue across class lines. But the, the facts are that if if you are an affluent black person, you are less likely to be to have that kind of contact with the police than a lower class black person. And that that I think should be acknowledged. Jamel Bowie, thank you so much for joining us here at the War on Cars. I really enjoyed speaking with you. No, this was a real pleasure, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And um, you know, stay safe for the rest of your pandemic. I'm looking forward to your 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 second year anniversary tweet about the e-bike and see, <laughs> to see how, see where this journey takes you. Yeah, that's yeah. when I eventually kind of just buy another one. Um, <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. That is the path of bicycle ownership. More bikes. That's it for my conversation with Jamel Bowie. As always, thank you for listening to The War on Cars. You can find links to Jamel's work, including his column in the New York Times and his photography in the show notes. If you enjoy the podcast, go to thewaroncars.org and please click Become a Patreon Supporter. Help fund the war effort. We'll send you stickers. We'll send you t-shirts. And you will have access to bonus content that is available nowhere else. Special thanks to our top Patreon supporters, the law offices of Vaccaro and White in New York, Charlie G of Human Powered Law in Portland, Drew Raines and Virginia Baker. Don't forget about the special deal from our friends at Cleverhood. Go to cleverhood.com slash war on cars. Use coupon code war on cars to receive 25% off of all your purchases of rain gear designed specifically for people who will bike and walk. We really love their stuff. Go get it. And hey, Keep an eye on the War on Cars store. We're selling coffee mugs, and we've got some exciting new products in the works. Go to thewaroncars.com slash store. Click store. Check it out. Please rate and review the War on Cars on Apple Podcasts. Wherever you get your podcasts, it helps people find us. You can email us at thewaroncars at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at the War on Cars and Facebook, which we don't like very much, but we're there. This episode was produced by me, Aaron Napperstack. It was edited by Ali Lemer. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Goodyear. Our logo is by Danny Finkel of Crucial D Designs. And on behalf of my co-hosts, Sarah Goodyear and Doug Gordon, I am Aaron Napperstack, and this is The War on Cars. My master made me this collar. He is a good and smart master, and he made me this collar so that I may talk. Squirrel!